But how many times have you heard or have you thought the sentence, if I could just start over? How many of you have, have ever thought that? How many of you ever heard that? If I could just start over. If I could just get back in bed and wake up to a fresh start, maybe your day is not going too well. Or maybe you've thought in your mind, if I could just start this whole conversation all over again, it would be a lot better. <laughs> maybe you're watching a game and, and your team's not doing too well and you think, you know, if we could just restart this game and have it go back zero to zero, that would be really good. Maybe some of you, if I could just be 25 again. <laughs> Well, in life, we can't just start over. Life doesn't work that way. In fact, God's plan for our lives doesn't work that way. But while we can't just start over, in Christ, God does give us a new beginning. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what we need to remember in our Christian lives is that in Christ, and this is a really good thing to write down, in Christ, while the past does not cease to exist, the present and the future is no longer bound to it. While the past does not cease to exist, the present and the future is not bound to it. We do find a new beginning in Christ. And as we come to chapter 5 of Joshua, we likewise come to a new beginning for the people of God. It's because of God's faithfulness that the people now find themselves in a new land as a newly consecrated people. And this morning, we're going to look at this new beginning. We're going to look at the new beginning for the children of Israel. And then we're going to see what this ultimately points us to through Christ. How this relates to our new beginning. How this relates to our life in Christ. And once again, we're reminded of, of the theme of this series, a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. What does our faith in Christ look like? This morning we're going to see that our faith in Christ is that Christ has provided a new beginning. And we want to ask ourselves, I want to ask you, how are you living in light of your new beginning? Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning, this time that we've had to sing and worship. Uh, Lord, the conversations that we've already been able to have this morning. Lord, we thank you that a little bit later, we're able to partake in the Lord's Supper together. 
God, I, I thank you for, Lord, just uh, this week as we look ahead to Thanksgiving and, and all that we have to be thankful for. But Lord, nothing compares to the thankfulness that should be in our hearts for the new beginning that you have provided for us in Christ. Lord, we have a lot going on this morning, and I pray, God, that you would just still our minds, that you would still our hearts to receive what you have for us from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at four aspects of this new beginning that we see in Joshua chapter 5 and that we also see points us to the new beginning that we have in Christ. What I first of all want to draw your attention to is the context in which we have this new beginning. The context in which Israel has this new beginning. The people of Israel have just passed through the Jordan River. And then we come to chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The context of this new beginning is that God is at work. God's at work. In, in chapter 4, in verse 24... The, the, the fathers were to tell their children that God had us pass through the river on dry ground, verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Already we see a partial fulfillment of this happening. That the nations are hearing about God. We see the work of God with the crossing of the Jordan. That, that verse 1 talks about how the, uh, the, the, the kings heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. They heard that the people of Israel crossed over. Only God could do this. The work of God is displayed in the crossing of the Jordan, but the work of God here, the context for this new beginning that God has given Israel, is evidenced by the fear of the Canaanites as well. The text says that as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. Now, this is, these are two terms, Amorites and Canaanites. The leaders of these, of these city-states in Canaan, two examples that are used to describe basically when all of the people in the land of Canaan heard. Basically from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Jordan River, when all of the peoples in between 
Those two waters heard their hearts melted. All of Canaan is in fear. In fact, I have a map here for you. How many of you... uh, It wasn't until later in my Christian life uh, that I saw the importance of looking at maps. Uh, They really aren't just decorations in the front or back of our Bibles. But you see, um, to all the way to your left, that's the Mediterranean Sea that the verse is talking about. And then you have the Jordan River, that's that squiggly line right in the middle. So basically, everyone in between these two bodies of water feared. This is all the people. God is revealing Himself to all peoples of the earth. Chapter 4, verse 24. Now the response of those hearts that are set against God was this terror, fear. The description in verse 1, it says their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them. This is exactly how Rahab describes the people of Jericho. If you look back in your Bible, in chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11, Rahab says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Has the idea that they're they're struck with fear. Their hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. That expression, no spirit in them, means that there's no courage, there's no vitality of life left in them. Today, we would say they were quaking in their boots. I mean, they they were paralyzed with fear. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been gripped with fear and you find out how you respond under intense fear? How many of you have have been in a situation like that? You, uh, you, You soon realize the people that basically their mind goes blank and they just stand there. You, you, you learn about who are the reactors, who are the ones that like jump into action. It's a really interesting scenario when something fearful and unexpected happens. Well, here, they were so gripped with fear because this was not the fear, as we will talk about next week, of simply a mighty army. This is the fear of something that is greater than any human. This is God for his people. And folks, as we look here just in verse 1 at how we can draw application, in your life, in my life, we must trust that God is at work. We must trust that God is at work. The very reality that if we have looked to Jesus as our Savior, that very reality that if we are in Christ, we know 100% that God is at work in our lives. Are you trusting that God is at work? Are you judging God's work 
by what you see Or are you trusting in your Savior who is at work for you? You see, the context of our new beginning is just like the context for the children of Israel that God was at work. And folks, God's work of saving our souls, of washing our sins clean, is so much of a greater miracle than even parting a body of water. That's our God. But the second aspect of this new beginning that I want us to look, look at is not only the context, but our new beginning in light of our covenant relationship with God. I'm not going to read here all at once verses 2 to 7. Uh, Eric already did that. But as we come to verses 2 to 7, we see this act of circumcision. Uh, let's read verses 2 and 3 together. It says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Har Haloth. Eric and I were talking about how, how do you pronounce that? Now, as we come to verses 2 and 3, if you're kind of carefully reading here, you, you might be a little surprised because after reading verse 1 that the people are struck with terror, you would think that now would be the, a great time to attack, right? The enemy is gripped with fear. They have no courage left in them. They're the ones that are going to be paralyzed that are just standing there and aren't even thinking, how do I fight back? But all of a sudden, rather than here's your battle plan, Joshua, it says at that time, so the crossing of the Jordan was the tenth day of the month, we're going to read later that on the 14th day of the month, they celebrate the Passover. So in between the 10th and the 14th of the first month of the year, God has other plans. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now this isn't talking about the same people as we'll see later getting circumcised again. Thank goodness. No, this, this, this is, these are individuals that, uh, that have never been circumcised. This is a second circumcision. This seemed, from one angle, to be, God, why? Why now? Can't, can't, we, can't we fight while we kind of have the advantage here? But Joshua obeyed, verse 3, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Har Haloth. Flint knives are, are uh, sharp on, on one side. They were used in the ancient days, cut out of a type of stone or uh, material. 
The only other time we read about flint knives is in Exodus 4, where Moses was to circumcise his child on the way to Egypt, where again God was going to do a work for his people. And we see something here. We see that God has all of the details of when the people are to fight, how God is going to give the land of Canaan. He desires from His people consecrated obedience. Not to simply get the job done because in their own strength they couldn't. He desires from His people their heart's allegiance. What is the significance here of circumcision? The significance of circumcision, we have to realize, is in the context of covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship. A covenant in the Bible is a relationship that God enters into with a person or people where he obligates himself to his people and his people obligate themselves to him. Covenant is in the context always of relationship. And it was outward circumcision in the Old Testament that marked a covenant member of Israel. I asked you to put your finger in Genesis 17. If you just want to quickly flip over to Genesis 17, we see this, circumc- this act of circumcision in the context of covenant uh, first with Abraham. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham that he is going to have offspring, that God is going to give him this, this very land of Canaan that, that Israel is now approaching. And in verse 7 of chapter 17, God says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Man, what what a statement of relationship. God is obligating Himself to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. And get this in verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was a sign that these individuals were under God's covenant. They were in relationship with Him. Now in the Old Testament, this was purely an external marking. We later read in the book of Exodus about Moses. I already shared with you the account where he was on his way to Egypt and God said, you must circumcise your child. 
Well, when God in Exodus 12 gives Israel, says you are to observe the Passover, he says everyone who observes the Passover, even those that are foreigners that are living among you, they must be circumcised to take part of the covenant. Why? Because taking part of the Passover meant that you were a covenant recipient in relationship with God. Now, as we know that uh, simply being circumcised externally meant nothing for the heart, right? The people of Israel rebelled against God. And in, in Deuteronomy, we read about the new covenant. A new covenant was needed that was greater than the covenant that God established with Moses. And in Exodus, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. The call goes out to Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See, it wasn't anything with, uh, to God that simply the external circumcision had occurred. It was the heart. And of course, the people could not do this themselves. And in Deuteronomy 30, we have the promise. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. As we get to the New Testament, we read, in fact, Jesus' crucifixion in Colossians is re referred to as a type of circumcision. And we read that as, as we now have the Holy Spirit indwell us, when we are followers of Jesus, when He saves us, our hearts are circumcised. A greater circumcision than something that's purely external. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, what does this have to do with me? What is the application here? Here's the application. Are you set apart to God? We see the importance of being set apart to God in verses 2 and 3. It wasn't, okay, you're across the Jordan, the people are scared, now let's get them while they're fearful. No, it's stop, and you need to be set apart to me. Are you set apart to God? As the line of Scripture points us, true circumcision is a new heart. First of all, I want to ask you, are you set apart to God by being circumcised in heart? Maybe this morning you, you have played the religious game for decades. In fact, uh, uh, Rachel's been reading a biography of, of Elizabeth Elliot. Um, you know, Jim Elliot. Her, uh, his, his wife, yeah. And uh, did you know she got married? Uh, she got married three times. Jim Elliot died, and then she got married to um, another fella who was um, who was a, a Bible professor. And after five years, he died. And then she married a third person, and they were they were uh, married for thirty eight years or so. And then, of course, Elizabeth Elliot died. 
Um, their marriage for the 38 years was very rocky. Did you know that here he was, he was kind of her uh, manager, so to speak, booking all of her speaking appointments and doing all of that. And privately, he was kind of, he was kind of a really rough guy. And he wound up getting saved in 2019. That's Elizabeth Elliot's husband. Folks, we can play the game and be in religious circles and all of that, but that's nothing more than just an external circumcision when the reality is not a changed, cleansed heart. Have you truly come to Jesus? Have you made Him Lord and Savior? But not only coming to God in salvation, have you been set apart by God that there is still a parallel in, from the Old Testament to the New Testament when we look at circumcision? We see a parallel in the waters of baptism. What is the outward marker for a true Christian today? It's baptism. That one publicly expresses their allegiance to Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. We know that the waters of baptism do not change the heart. The Holy Spirit does that. But there is still an outward identity marker that all of God's people are called to have. And it's baptism. And folks, whether you are a, a, maybe an older child here, you're a teenager here, you're an adult here, and you have never put on, so to speak, that outward marker, and you know that you're a follower of Jesus, that's what God wants you to do. You cannot be a serious, committed Christian without following Christ in baptism. Are you set apart to God? Both inwardly and outwardly? Maybe you say, Pastor Adam, I, I've, I'm truly a believer. I have a new heart. I'm not perfect. None of us are. I've been baptized. And we all know that that struggle to be set apart to God is a continual struggle. Our priorities in life, what we're striving for, our relationships, all of these things, we continually have to put at the feet of Jesus. But are you set apart by God today? Well, as we come to verses 4 to 7, we come to this new generation. And in verse 4, it says, This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had who had uh, who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been, been circumcised. 
For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So as we look at this new generation, we simply see two things. First of all, this new generation did not have the mark of the covenant. Um, the, the, the parents who, uh, uh, the, the men who had been circumcised, they died in the wilderness. Again, their outward circumcision didn't touch the heart. They disobeyed and they died in the wilderness. Now the, these, these uh, younger children are now adults had never been circumcised. As one person says, they were God's people and yet they were not. They remain objects of God's care and yet possess no sign to show they were His. So, God is now commanding for this circumcision to take place. And in verses 6 and 7, we see this new generation was raised up by God they were to be marked by obedience, and that obedience started by aligning themselves with God's covenant. To mark themselves that they were indeed under God's covenant and they were set apart to Him. So that leads us, and, and we're running out of time here, but that leads us to our third aspect of Israel's new beginning and that how this points to our new beginning. We saw the context, God was at work. The relationship of how we have a new beginning is through a greater covenant, the new covenant. And then thirdly, we see our covenant status because of this new beginning that we have in Christ. For Israel, in verse 8, the people were circumcised. It says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Uh, if you want to see an example of uh, where that didn't go so well, you can read Genesis 34, where you remember Levi and Simeon tricked, um, I forget the, 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 the group of people, um, but they were healing and they came in and, and wiped them all out. We see here God's providential protection of this happening to Israel, by the way, because of verse 1. The people are paralyzed with fear. They would have time to recover. But here's the covenant status we read of in the Old Testament as a result of this. Verse 9, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. As the people are circumcised, God says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Their reproach was rolled away. You may say, Pastor Adam, what, what does that mean? Um, uh, the reproach of Egypt is talking about the shame, the disgrace that the people of Israel carried with them by their uncircumcision, 
that was an indicator to how they were rebellious against God in the wilderness. They wouldn't continue when God said go. And their lack of circumcision showed that they were wandering around as homeless people without a land. Without the sign of their relationship with God. And now they were marked by God. In fact, Gilgal means, it's, it's, a, it's a, a similar word to the word to roll. The reproach was rolled away down the hill. So again, as we ask ourselves, what is the application here? Folks, if we are recipients of a better covenant, a new covenant, we know that our sins, not simply our reproach of being marked by a nation has been rolled away. No, our sins that marked whose kingdom, the kingdom of Satan that we were under, has been rolled away. We see the miracle of new life. And once again here, we see the importance of outward identification. Folks, our Christian life truly begins publicly at baptism. I'm not saying you're saved because of baptism, but publicly, you are outwardly marked by baptism. It is the seal of our Christian experience, of our Christian lives. We read of, of individuals in other countries, and, and Pastor Dennis shared a similar story that you'll read in, in countries, for instance, in the Middle East, where you truly are to become a follower of Jesus. You are saying no to everything, including family and possibly your own life. People make professions but they realize that, man, when I get baptized, that is when I'm going to be disowned. That is the marker that people look at to say, this is real. And we've lost the significance, I think, in many Christian circles here in free countries of the importance and the necessity of baptism. Baptism marks our covenant status that our sins have indeed been rolled away. And then we quickly, as we close, and I think this is just, this is God's timing, I think, as we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, and this wasn't pre-planned, but we look here at verses 10 to 12 of our text. Not only our covenant relationship in verses 2 to 7 and our covenant status, our sins have been rolled away, verses 8 and 9, and baptism shows that, but then our covenant commemoration, celebration of our new beginning. In the Old Testament, for the Old Covenant people of God, that commemoration of a new beginning was marked by the Passover. As New Testament believers, 
Under the new covenant, our commemoration is marked by the Lord's Supper. And for Israel in verse 10, we see Passover for the first time ever. This is important in the new land. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Here we see Israel keeps the Passover for the first time in the land of Canaan. This Passover celebration was marked by both looking backward and looking forward. In fact, we don't have time to read it, but if you write down, if you're taking notes, Exodus 13, 3-5, where Moses says to the people to remember during this Passover time, they remember when they celebrated in the future that they were taken out of Egypt. And then he later says, when you one day celebrate this in the land of Canaan, he gives them instructions, both looking backwards and forwards. In fact, the very fact that the text says that they celebrated this at the end of verse 10, in the evening on the plains of Jericho, is an indicator what's to come next. In our case, in chapter 6, with Jericho. But also, as they partook of Passover in the new land, this was marked by a covenantal relationship between God and His people. They were now outwardly set apart to Him. So now, they could have fellowship at this meal with their God and with each other. See, the Israelites were God's people and God would keep His covenant promises. Then we get to verse 11 and 12 and we see Passover in the new land and God's provision in the new land. The day after the Passover, verse 11, on that very day they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. How did God provide in this new land? He gave them the produce. For the first time ever, they eat of the fruits of the land. Verse 12 shows us that the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. You see, God would continue to preserve them. The manna was never an end to itself. Their relationship with God was that the manna was just one way God would provide for His people until He brought them a new source of provision. Folks, how can we apply this to our lives? I have three ways. Number one, we must joyfully and continually embrace our covenant relationship with God in the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper, just as baptism is a mark that I am 
a believer. It's an outward mark. The Lord's Supper is a continual mark that we as the church are testifying to God and to one another that we are a part of God's new covenant family. That we still believe that Jesus is enough. It serves to strengthen our faith that as we take the bread and as we hold the cup, that God will, just like He did for Israel, He will continue to preserve us. He will not let us go. We are His people. See, just as the Passover, it was a corporate event, so the Lord's Supper is a church-wide event. And I think according to Scripture, we see uh, different evidences in the New Testament, but even here in this example, circumcision and then observance. We see Lord's Supper, or excuse me, we see baptism, outward observance, and then continual observance, the Lord's Supper, in that order. We must joyfully and continually embrace our covenant relationship with God in the Lord's Supper. It's a time of, of solemnness, but also celebration. Many times in my life, I don't come to the, to the Lord's, well, not many times, all the time in my life, I don't come to the Lord's Supper because somehow I have my act together. I come to the Lord's Supper to help me remember who has my act all together. See, I can yell at my wife on, on the way to church, and, and I do need to apologize for that, but that's not going to keep me from the Lord's Supper. That's going to draw me to it. Because I need the assurance of where my hope is. It's not in self. And man, if there's disunity and things like that, uh, we do need to make that right with our brothers. We see that in 1 Corinthians, that everyone was out for themselves. The Lord's Supper became their supper. But let's not confuse that with feeling like we have to somehow be perfect before we can come. Number two, God nourishes us with Himself. Every day, God nourishes us with Himself. The Lord's Supper is a special way that we can corporately be nourished by Him at His table. And then every day of life, God's grace sustains us. And then number three, God has given us new life and He will sustain us to the end. The people of Israel were in the land of Canaan. God was providing for him, but their journey had just begun. And folks, Jesus has secured for us a promised land. But we are still in that journey and we look to Him to preserve us, to sustain us to the end. So brothers, sisters, a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. 
What does this passage show us of our faith in Christ? That Christ has provided for us a new beginning. Are you living mindfully in light of that? What is your next step to live in light of that? Is it following the Lord in baptism? Is it taking seriously the Lord's Supper? Is it placing your everyday faith and priorities on Him? Is it receiving Christ for the very first time? Let's pray.